0: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. What is the good life? What does it mean for humans to flourish? Given that we're in July, you might immediately think the beach. Not quite. Some may say that the good life is in pursuing earthly things and accumulating as much money or political power or pleasure or experiences as we possibly can. And of course, we know that these things are fleeting, that they go away, that they're shifting sands, not worth laying a foundation on. Others may say, and I think this is the worst answer to the question, what is the good life? Others may say that there is no objective meaning to the good life that we have to make our own meaning, that we get to decide whatever the good life looks like. And of course, this leads to total anarchy and absurdity. Now, the Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, they all took a hand at answering this question, what is the good life? And they actually did a really, really good job for pagans because they said that the good life is found in being virtuous because virtues are the habits of healthy souls. Virtues are the habits of healthy souls. The Christian understanding of the good life drew heavily from these philosophers, incorporating their ideas into a larger system that presupposes God as our creator, the problem of sin, and the solution of the incarnation, the crucifixion, and resurrection of our Lord and the sacraments that he gave us. According to most Christian theologians, the virtues can be divided into two main categories. There are a few more, but two really important ones. The first category is cardinal or moral virtue, and the other category is theological virtue. Cardinal virtues usually are listed as prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. And generally, these are acquired through practice, through habit. And further, the church would say, uh, you don't have to be a Christian in order to attain these virtues. We all know people who aren't Christians, who are very prudent or just or temperate or, or brave. So anyone can acquire cardinal virtues. The theological virtues, however, are of a different nature. This includes faith, hope, and love, as Paul lists them in 1 Corinthians 13. We cannot acquire faith, hope, and love on our own You can't decide as someone who doesn't have faith to wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm going to develop some faith today. You can't drum that up inside yourself because that would be the heresy of Pelagianism. But we're also told in the scriptures that we can't attain salvation unless we have faith, hope, and love. So where do we get them? The answer is that they are given to us. They're infused in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this begins at our baptisms, and it's strengthened in us through fuller participation in the sacramental system, through prayer, and through good works. Now, at the end of today's epistle reading, St. Peter the Apostle urges us to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. This means that we should consider Christ as our Lord and act accordingly. And it is centering our lives around this recognition that causes us to live the good life. For St. Peter, if we truly recognize that Christ is Lord, then that means the virtue of love is our ultimate pursuit, which is realized through the attainment of other virtues. What is love, the song asks. That seems to be a big question in our culture today. Love is love, we often hear, but that's really nondescript and quite trite. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, love is to will the good of the other. Or rather, it's the choice to will the good of the other. This means love is not a fleeting feeling. It's not infatuation. It's not lust. It is sacrificial. It's putting the good of the other ahead of ourselves. Love is a choice. It's not an accident. It doesn't just happen to us, it's not passive. It is active. It's something that we do on purpose. And in the scriptures, there are two precepts that belong to love that we call the summary of the law. We just heard them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, first, we are to love God. But our love for God is different than our love for other people, right? We don't love God for his good in the same way that we love others. Because God is already goodness itself, and He doesn't really need our love, strictly speaking, because He's fully uh, He's fully satisfied in Himself. So we love God not because of what He does or anything like that. We love Him because of who He is. We love God because He is sweetness. He is goodness. He is truth. But then we're given the second precept that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Who is our neighbor? The Pharisees asked our Lord, which is what causes him to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the answer to that question from the story of the Good Samaritan is that whoever we come in contact with is our neighbor. Now, the demands of the love we show our neighbors may vary based on the nature of our relationships. We don't love our spouses the same way that we love our physical neighbors, and we don't love our physical neighbors the same way we love childhood friends, but we are to love others. And that love begins with a fundamental recognition that whoever we're encountering is created by God. And as a result, we should see all others that we come in contact with as receptacles of that same sweetness, goodness, and truth that is to be found in its fullness in God. And further. Many of the Christian theologians who write on love say that we should love others because we share with them a love for God. Now, you may be asking, well, what about non-Christians who don't love God? To which the, many of the theologians would say, well, you should love them anyways because they might love God. And that potentiality is enough to make us love them. Now, the other thing to remember about love is that it's the greatest of the theological virtues. According to St. Paul, the greatest of these is love. But also, love grows from faith and hope. Faith, according to the author of Hebrews, is the substance of what's hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. It is believing what God says simply because God says it. Hope springs from faith because trusting in God's promise, we confidently expect what's good for us based on his word. Hope then produces love in us because if we know what God's doing, and we know that he'll complete the good work he began in us, well, then we should love him and adore him. Love, then, is the chief end for which we were made. And this is why I think St. Peter begins today's reading with that exhortation, love as brethren. Obedience to this command, of course, starts here in the church. It starts with one another because we're bound together by our worship of God. But we take that love out into the world. It spirals out so that it applies to anybody that we encounter because they might be co-worshippers with us. Now, if the theological virtues are given to us by God and the cardinal virtues are acquired through habit and work, the question is, are they related? What do justice, temperance, fortitude, etc., have to do with faith, hope, and love? After all, they have different ends, don't they? Faith, hope, and love are aimed at our heavenly goods, namely our beatification. But the cardinal virtues are aimed at the good of earthly life. Like I said, anybody can have those virtues. A pagan may not have faith, hope, or love, but at at least they have prudence, justice, and fortitude. Still, the virtues do not exist unconnected from one another. Moral virtues do not guarantee theological virtues. Just because someone's nice, just because they act ethically, doesn't mean they have faith or hope or love. But if somebody does have the theological virtues, then they must have the cardinal virtues because love works itself out through actions and actions must be determined by these cardinal virtues. So, for example, we cannot love someone without knowing the appropriate end and the means to that end in the relationship that we have with them. That would be the virtue of prudence. We cannot love unless we're willing to endure hard times with the other person. Think about the prayer book marriage rite for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Well, that's fortitude. We cannot love if we're not willing to render the other person what's due them the kind of honor and respect that they deserve. That's justice. In fact, the 1662 prayer book in The Marriage Rite says the husband actually pledges to worship his wife with his body, which means rendering her her worth, not necessarily treating her like a deity, but rendering her worth. That's, that's justice. And finally, we cannot love without self-restraint, right? Every relationship comes with a certain set of boundaries that makes that relationship what it is. And so you don't treat your friends the same way you would treat your spouse and vice versa, right? Um, and that's temperance. So love then must express itself through these cardinal virtues. These are the means whereby we love God. And what this means is that the church really is sort of a laboratory of virtue. It's a place where we acquire virtue. It's a training ground for virtue because it's the divinely appointed means whereby those theological virtues are infused in us, right? We see this first and foremost in the sacraments. In a few weeks, Lord willing, we're going to get to baptize two very, very adorable babies, which is one of my favorite parts of the job. And we know that when the water's poured over them and those words are spoken by the priest, I baptize thee in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Those babies are Christians and they have in them faith, hope, and love. Now you might be thinking, they're babies. How can they have faith, hope, and love? Well, go back and read the story. When our lady visits her cousin as she's pregnant with Jesus and John the Baptist leaps in the womb at their presence, that's faith. That's probably a more profound faith than most of us have. So we see it primarily in baptism, or that's where we receive these gifts in germ, but those gifts unfold as we live our lives. We see them week after week in the Eucharist. Faith, hope, and love are present. We rely on the promise of our Lord that was given to the apostles at the Last Supper. We're participating in the, in the great supper of the Lamb that's talked about in Revelation, filling us with hope. And when we have that hope, how can we do anything but love God and grow in that love? The theological virtues are further imparted through preaching, or at least they might be. Now, of course, preaching is less certain than sacraments. I'm told you can have bad sermons, um, but you can't have bad sacraments. You either have sacraments or you don't. Nevertheless, through the reading of Holy Scripture, through the proclamation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit moves and works in our hearts, stoking faith, hope, and love in us. Now, while the church begins with the sacraments and with preaching— There is a social element to the church as well, right? We see this in Acts 2.42. We see really the theological and, and cardinal virtues converge because the early Christians continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Now that fellowship, that word is koinonia, speaks to something deeper than coffee hours and dinners and social gatherings, Those activities are really important, and they're important because they're opportunities for us to exhibit this kind of koinonia, practice this kind of koinonia, but they aren't the koinonia itself, because fellowship, at least in a Christian context, is the bearing of one another's burdens on the foundation of our bond in Christ. So our fellowship, according to St. Peter, is an opportunity for us to exercise compassion, that is, understanding and sympathy so that we can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Oftentimes when someone is really ecstatic or really sad or depressed, there really is no magic set of words that you can say to them that will make things better, right? Um, And so part of our ministry with each other, part of this bearing burdens, part of this fellowship is a ministry of presence, of being there alongside of someone who's suffering or who's rejoicing. Further, St. Peter tells us where to exhibit pity. Which for, <clears throat> which for Peter is a kind of tenderheartedness. Our hearts should break for the things that God's heart breaks for, and we should rejoice in the things that make God rejoice. And this is the basis on which we're kind to one another, our tenderheartedness, as St. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.32. <clears throat> Further, Peter tells us we are to be courteous. And being courteous isn't just being nice. We should be nice. We should be nice to everyone. But that's not quite what, what Peter has in view here. Real courteousness stems from humility. It's the putting of the other first. It's manifest in Jesus' commandment, which St. Peter rearticulates here, that we render not evil for evil. And so as the church, we're faced with two paths. There's the way of wisdom, and there's the way of folly. There's the way of blessings and curses. To detail this, St. Peter quotes Psalm 34. He that will love life and see good days... Well, what is that but living the good life? And in order to live flourishing lives of faithfulness, Peter, informed by the psalmist, offers us three habits to develop. Number one, refraining from speaking evil. Number two, putting away evil and doing good. And number three, seeking peace. In light of this, St. Peter reminds us that there are two paths or destinations in relation to our ultimate good, which is God. He says, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Well, that's where we want to be. But the alternative is, the face of the the Lord is against those who do evil. And then he asks an interesting question. Who can harm you if you do good? Who can harm you if you do good? It reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10. Fear not them which kill the body and not the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The church then matters. The church matters not because it's a place that keeps us entertained through content creation and fatty contemporary music, nor is it some political vehicle by which we acquire more and more power, nor is it a community club style organization. Those other organizations exist and we can go find them. But the church matters not because it's like those organizations, but because it's the place where the virtues are infused and stoked in us and acquired by us. Now, at the end of morning and evening prayer each day, there's this really beautiful prayer of thanksgiving that has this great line in it, where we ask that we, that we may show forth thy praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives. This is exactly what St. Peter wants us to do. Because the very opening exhortation in this morning's reading is to be of one mind. And the Greek word for that is the word that means harmonious. That's significant. It means that in our lives, we play our part in this great symphony that is the church by acting with those virtues that have been given to us by God. Now, members of of churches are not united because we agree on every single little issue. You don't have to spend too much time in any church to realize we don't agree on every single issue. And that's okay. We're not united because of that. We're not united because we look alike. We're not united because we talk alike or whatever other sort of accidental quality we might have in common. Rather, we're united by our recognition and submission to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as our ruler. And on that foundation, we as the church, corporately and individually, are those who seek virtue.